The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as Art Basel Miami Beach opens, we discuss a new book, The Art Fair Story, A Roller Coaster Ride, plus Caribbean British art at Tate Britain and a virtual reality work in Miami. I talked to Melanie Gerlis about her book on the past, present and future of art fairs. As a huge new show, Life Between Islands, Caribbean British Art 1950s to Now, opens at Tate Britain. I talked to its curators, Alex Farkerson and David A. Bailey. And in this episode's Work of the Week, we're back in Miami. Amy Dawson talks about Heaven's Gate, a new work in virtual reality or VR by Marco Brambia at the Perez Art Museum. Before that, the new series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues, featuring in-depth conversations with artists about the art, music, literature and film that's influenced them and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. The latest episode is with Pablo Bronstein. Do subscribe to A Brush With and this podcast wherever you're listening now. And if you like what we do, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, Art Basel Miami Beach is the latest art fair to return after an enforced sabbatical because of the pandemic. It coincides with the publication of The Art Fair Story, a new book by the Financial Times art market columnist and editor-at-large at the art newspaper, Melanie Gerlis. Melanie has been in Miami this week and I spoke to her about the fair and the book. Melanie, before we come to talk about your book, uh, you've just come back from Miami. How was it? It was lively. It was buzzy. It wasn't crazy daisy. I mean, I think I'm sure you've you've been as well to the Miami Fair and the beach and, and when you can barely walk in the aisles of the fair come three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then, Actually, no, oh, I've never been to <laughs> okay. OK, well, there comes a point because and what they've done is that they've done extra timed entry to the fair. So across two days. And I think look, the reality is not as many people are traveling. A few galleries were very, very conscious of not holding parties and not all of them but a few were um just to to, to sort of reflect slightly different times but it was still buzzy the sun shone there were some great museum openings um the rebel collection looks amazing um and yeah people were pleased to be there right and and obviously there's this you know new variant of covid19 which has emerged was there much talk about omicron there Oh, definitely. I mean, a lot of us were at the airport, you know, trying to reorganise tests because we, not to get too technical, but we'd we'd organise lateral flow tests and then you had to change those to PCRs and we were all on the hop. And there were a few jitters. Um, There are obviously a few South African galleries um, who all made it in some shape or form or other, but possibly not the same people who were meant to come came. William Kentridge, the artist, was meant to come out to, to see a show at, at his gallery, Goodman Gallery, who had a pop-up and he couldn't come. I think it was more that it was a reminder of the fragility of all this, that we keep saying we're in a post-pandemic time and we're not. Absolutely. And actually, that's a that's a neat segue into your book because because obviously you wrote your book, The Art Fair Story, at that moment where after this extraordinary growth in the art fair mm. world, it suddenly hit a buffer. So can you say, I mean, what was it like to write a book 
in that context because here you are talking about this roller coaster ride and it suddenly had the completely new twist. Yeah, exactly. It was interesting. I mean, one thing I realized straight away was that the reason I had time to write a book was because I wasn't jumping on planes and going to art fairs. And it made me think a little bit about, you know, our choices and, and what we're all doing herring around the world. Uh, but the other thing I would say is when I started it, I think I thought it's done. This art fair industry is, is over. We, we, we tried because I think what people maybe do remember is even before the pandemic, there were moans and groans. And it's just economically for galleries, never mind there are lots of tired journalists, for galleries it's economically quite tricky for most galleries. It adds to the risk of it all. And during the, the six months of writing, it became apparent that they weren't completely going away and so in a positive way, that there are reasons why we still need some art fairs. So it was quite, for me, it was quite an interesting journey, actually. I probably went from these are done to yeah, they've, they've suffered a few blows before, but this will, this will change things. Right, exactly. Really intriguingly, the book looks at the sort of gestation of the art fairs. And, and one of the things I think that would surprise many readers is, in a way, there was actually quite a noble intent. It wasn't all about money in the first instance. It was actually about making sure that people could see contemporary art. Because, of course, it was pre the booming contemporary. Ooh. Every museum now, all the national galleries, the old, the old, you know, old master Ooh. galleries want contemporary art now. But that wasn't the case back when Art Cologne begins. And you begin with Art Cologne in 1967. I do, yes. I mean, I think I think the model of art fairs was around in in some ways before Cologne. But in terms of the modern day art fair, and indeed, as you're saying, for contemporary art, Cologne was the first of of its kind. Um, and yes, absolutely, there was a real need to jumpstart a market pretty much from zero, especially in Europe, where, because after the war, you know, everyone had moved to America and no one wanted anything German and cutting edge. And just, yeah, there was, it is really, really hard to imagine that auction houses didn't sell contemporary art. And there was nowhere, you know, you had to make your way to a gallery in a slightly difficult place and really, really love it to find it. So there was a real need. Indeed. And and one of the interesting things about the book is that you, you chart in a way the growth and the decline of, of certain fairs. And obviously Art Cologne, therefore, this, this you know, was a real, you know, sort of trailblazer. But it was actually Art Basel that followed slightly in its wake that's become this sort of unbelievable beer moth. This is, the, you know, and, and still the fair that everyone always says mm. is their favourite. It is. It's interesting to see why some fairs survive and why some fairs wax and wane. And the reality is most wax and wane and quite a lot that don't make it through. But yes, it's interesting to look at maybe why, why Art Basel. And I think one reason is that it started out a bit more internationally than Cologne. It started out being open to people from overseas and the Americans were very important. And there are some really prosaic reasons as well. I mean, Basel was in June. And June is the end of the year when dealers have inventory to get rid of and everyone's making their way to Venice. It's the end of the art market season. There are some, there are some fascinating, sometimes it's venues you know, that make the difference. Um, so there's some serendipity, but also I think Basel was just very strict with its selection. And, and sometimes uh, I think someone said to me, you need to be a little bit elite 
Right, that's it. And that's is, is it Monica? That's right, Monica Street. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Glad you remembered. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, and that still comes across today, doesn't mm. it? I mean, and, and everybody who goes to I, again, I've never been to Art Basel, <laughs> but but everybody I know who goes there always says there's a sort of certain refinement, and it seems that in a sense that's part of the brand. It's it's only the top galleries get in here, sort of thing. Exactly. It's very, it's very, it's quite stately, and it reflects, you know, what what I I should have mentioned is a very very long deep tradition of private collecting in Switzerland um, and and around the Rhine area. But that's also partly why Miami is so interesting, because when Art Basel launched in Miami, it was launching in a very different type of place with a very different type of fair. But that was around the time. And it, in fact, it launched in 2002. It's another twist in the in the roller coaster was it was meant to open in 2001. But unfortunately, um, 9-11 happened that year and no one was traveling. People were traveling even less then. But by then, the market had just become much more internationalised and a bit more fun. The story of art fairs in the US is really interesting, isn't it? Because Chicago had a really major fair and, again, a sort of the most prominent US fair for a while. But, of course, now New York is the focus for fairs mainly. Tell us about that. Yeah, the US is really, really interesting because absolutely, it's interesting already that Chicago was the first place in the same way as Basel had all the rivers and railways. Chicago had lots of lots of airlines and and some great museums um, and a love of contemporary art and contemporary music. It was the perfect place, really. It was just unfortunately a mess. It, for twenty years, it ran phenomenally. It was the fair in America and at the right time, because what has also happened since uh, in the U.S. Is, is it's a lot more fragmented as a fair location than anywhere else in the world. Everywhere else has one definite leading fair and yes the Miami Art Basel Miami is probably the biggest fair but it's not in New York as you say and all the money I mean all, throughout the book the theme is that, that the art fairs follow the money and the money follows the art fairs and that moved from Chicago to New York and the art as well moved to New York I mean the abstract expressionist scene was really happening there but then what you get is a huge financial crash so you've got a, a fair that is whose organisers are in a mess, there's a ton of infighting, um, and then you have a huge market crash. And that combination, I think, was, was the death knell, really. Although I, I should say, the Chicago Fair has revived, it still exists, uh, and is doing very well under Tony Carmen. Um, but it died, briefly. And then New York was able to take over, and what happened through the terrible, de- sort of depressing years of the 90s, through the 90s crash, was you get these more grassrootsy, more fun, more artist-based. You know, no one really expected to make money, but they, they hung out in, in a hotel and sold art. Yeah, and that was the Gramercy Hotel. Exactly. And, and that's quite a legendary fair. It's one of those art world events that you hear stories about. You know, you meet people who went there and there were all sorts of chaotic happenings. Exactly. And it, and it, it almost doesn't sound like an art fair when people describe it. It sounds like a kind of an installation in, which involved galleries in some ways. It was really radical, right? It was. You know, the Chicago fairs you know, eventually were bought by merchandise marts who were a very corporatized. you know, they, they were in a convention centre, as was Basel. The, the Maastricht Teffa Fair also existed by then. These, these are much more conventional trade fairs. And this was a crazy hotel. Um, and the lift broke down. And, you know, people people were kind of, yeah, drinking and smoking up the, up the staircases from, from, uh, from what I hear. But I think also, I think we do one other theme that, that came through the book is we, we, we all rather romanticise that. That's what we want art and artists to be. And it can 
be like that when when there isn't much money sloshing around we're all quite happy to be creative and fun and and you know almost artist in a, in a garret in a hotel but as soon as that market came back the Gramercy which which eventually became the which is now the Armory show the Armory show mm. is now a bit more corporatized and indeed owned by Merchandise Mart who owned the Chicago Fair Right. Um, and an interestingly, Freeze, the London Fair, emerged partly out of a kind of interest that emerged from the Gramercy Hotel Fair, right? It, it wanted, it, it, that was part of the inspiration behind it. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think there was another fair in Cologne called Unfair, which itself was slightly the inspiration for the Gramercy Hotel Fair. And Matthew Slotover, who founded, co-founded Freeze, says yes absolutely they, they saw these fairs and again you know they were, that was the only way to see contemporary art freeze was terribly lucky in a way that an alternative sort of venue had been experimented with and seemed to be a success because freeze's tent has has been quite a signifier really of its of its brand although i think that is also challenging in the in the 21st century environmentally conscious age but that's yes. that's that's skipping that's skipping ahead. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a bit about Freeze because one of the things I think about Freeze that I found interesting is that obviously being in London and therefore seeing the ecosystem develop. Before that, there was the London Art Fair, which still exists, and it, it was in the Islington Business Design Centre, which was always always had other bits in it. <laughs> and and when you go back to the London Art Fair, it's sort of rather quaint now, and you can't believe that that was a sort of top London art fair really um but freeze was this sort of it burst into the London scene in a way which I don't think even those who who knew it was going to be impressive could have ever predicted right no I mean I think I call I call Matthew and Amanda sort of accidental entrepreneurs I didn't think even they thought it was going to be but that was the time of accidental entrepreneurs I mean it was outside the art world what what freeze was um incredibly lucky with really was it coincided with this enormous boom in wealth that came through London and London you know was not only the the sort of European center of financial trade but it was also it was between the US and, and Asia and it was just in a prime position everything was cut people were making fortunes investment banking was you know was 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 the job of choice and it was self-made money and what these people wanted was young fun art and we did have the artists now how much you know this is this as you said it's an ecosystem and this all relates but the artists who came up through the less uh, sort of uh, prosperous years through the 90s that who we now call you know the ybas coincided with this with money it's a match made in heaven really freeze now is the catalyst for everything that happens in that season in London. And what I mean when I say that it's it has that surprising effect is it's extraordinary that, for instance, the National Gallery's programming uh, is, is worked around Freeze. Mm. The Tate's mm. programming fits around Freeze. The extent to which you can have a commercial fair which dictates the whole cultural moment seems to me to be indicative of the kind of boom affairs that you write about. That's the, I think you call it the glory years. Yeah, I do call it the glory years. Exactly. That was when it, that was when it all became, or the golden, the golden years I think, of, yes, of, I of art fairs. But yeah, that was, I think that was when they were at their most powerful in a positive way. Um, and I think, I think being able to have that sort of cultural power within a city that already has 
phenomenal museums. Uh, and I, I think some, of, I'm not sure people at the National Gallery and Tate really like to admit that that is what they do, but they know they're doing it. You know, it's a sort of begrudging acknowledgement that what happens in October in London is a lot of money from all around the world comes to town. Exactly. The period since the the golden years mm. is obviously really very, it's very difficult to nail down because it's so international, it's so broad ranging. Um, but I'm interested in something you said quite early on in this discussion, which was about how even before COVID, there were question marks around mm. art fairs. Can you say something about what you mean by that? Why have they become difficult for galleries? Because it seems in the golden years that they weren't at all. Well, I think what happened is, isn't that art fairs have to make money. Um, and, you know, we talked about the Chicago Fair before, and one of the, the problems was that they realised this is quite an expensive venture to hire a venue and, you know, build a city for three days. And that becomes an expensive proposal to the galleries who, I mean, you know, they're essentially hiring, they're hiring a, a pop-up for three days. And the numbers just stopped adding up. And, you know, as every fair becomes more and more prestigious, and listen, dealers want walls that don't fall down. I mean, it really is. It's amazing <laughs> reading about you know, some of the Basel in the early years with you know pictures on the floor. Uh, the dealers don't want that, or, or they don't want they don't necessarily want people rolling down hills uh, next inside the tent. So people want the fair to professionalise, but with that comes more money. And then the question is, who wants it to professionalise? Well, it's the bigger galleries with the bigger art and the bigger money who are going to be okay. And if you're selling works from half a million up, these fairs, you, you make your costs back. I mean, the cost, and the cost isn't just the booth. I think this is the other thing people, people forget. Um, you know, the cost is also being in another city, bringing your staff to another city, or even your, a city in your own town. What do, you, what do you do with your gallery space that you're also paying rent on? You need hotels, you need food, they do parties, you know, even small or big, it's dinners, it all it all adds up. And and it just wasn't the, the cost of bringing a primary market artist. I mean, I, I spoke to Josh Lilly at the Miami Fair, and he was absolutely delighted to have sold his Rebecca Marson work from the um, Meridian section, so for larger work, huge ceramic piece that was made up of thousands and thousands of ceramic pieces of leaves. And it cost him $85,000 to ship it over. That's just the shipping. And the whole thing, the whole thing sold for 300 or 350,000, I think. And, you know, I could see him doing the sums in his head and he knows, he knows even that doesn't quite add up. But what he's saying is this is the best thing. This is the most amazing thing for my artist. And she's gone into two fabulous Texas collections and it's, it's very exciting. But there's only so many times you can do that. There's only so many fairs you can do that. And I think people were finding it, you know, you could go to a fair. I remember seeing one dealer in a Hong Kong fair, so you know which one it is, but she was in tears because she'd bought a solo booth of, uh, uh, again, quite a pricey work to ship and no one, no one liked it. And she's a highly respected primary market dealer, but it just hadn't paid off. That's so interesting. Um, you've just been in Miami and it's, you know, it's famously ground zero for climate change hmm. in the US. Hmm. And 
there was a lot of focus on climate change in freeze um, mm. in October. And there's this gallery climate coalition. And I'm just wondering about, you know, the, the sustainability factor, because that is a that is a massive factor. If art fairs are going to continue, they have to find a way to justify how they can exist going forward. can't mm. they? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge issue because we all say that we care. And as you say, that the gallery climate coalition is specifically for the art world. But I mean, you know, I got on my plane at Heathrow and bumped into eight people I know, you know, within five rows, you know. So I don't know how seriously the art world players are taking it when we don't have alternatives. But it's not really in the interest of the fairs to provide us a complete alternative because their very model is, as I said before, we build a city for a few days, come and visit us. I think... Avoiding temporary structures is one obvious area. There are now more choices. Not everyone does have to go to an art fair. Uh, you can you can browse through an iPad. You know they will take you. Our browser will take you around. Uh, you know on an iPad, and you can watch watch through Zoom. Uh, you can do it by phone. You can, so I think people need to be more aware of the choices. It's just what does the art fair do as a model? if fewer galleries show and fewer people visit. Right. Early on in the book, uh, there's a quote from Pat Hearn, the late Pat Hearn, who was involved in Gramercy. And she says that, that fundamentally fairs are an effort to move the product in whatever way possible. That's fundamentally what art fairs are about, right? Absolutely. And I, I do think we, we should romanticise them, you know, too much more than a, you know, than, a, than a washing machine trade fair. I mean, hopefully the product is more interesting I mean, in medieval times, people were going to markets, uh, you know, if you were selling cloth or meat or whatever, salt, you would take it to a market where you got the highest number of people for the highest amount of time and you made it an event and there were events around it and it galvanized all sorts of other conversation and activity. And absolutely, it's the same thing. And that's why I don't think the model is disappearing completely. It has existed for thousands of years. We just have technology now and it's going to be interesting what that does. And we also have cloth, meat, and salt in art fairs, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, some of the you no, know, some of the descriptions of I think there's a there's a 19th century poem by Tennyson on a great exhibition. It's like it just sounds like a press release that I get before an art fair. <laughs> well, Melanie, thank you so much for telling us about Miami and your new book. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. The Art Fair Story, A Roller Coaster Ride by Melanie Gurlis is published by Lund Humphreys and priced £19.99 in the UK. It's published in the US and Canada next year and priced $34.99 in the US and $46.99 in Canada. Coming up, we hear about Caribbean British art and a VR work in Miami. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam is planning the largest exhibition ever on Vermeer to be held in 2023. Until now, the most ambitious show was organised by the Moritz House in The Hague in 1996 with 23 paintings, but the Rijksmuseum says that it expects to get 24 pictures and possibly more. Vermeer's total autograph oeuvre is around 35 works. As Martin Bailey reports, the Rijksmuseum, the Dutch National Museum, which owns four Vermeers, has never held a monographic exhibition on the artist since its establishment in the 19th century. Although exhibition 
exhibitions are not normally announced so far in advance, shows on Vermeer take many years to organise. The Amsterdam dates will be the 10th of February to the 4th of June 2023. The Array Collective, a group of activist artists from Belfast, have won the Turner Prize 2021. It was announced in a ceremony in Coventry in the UK on Wednesday. They're the first artists from Northern Ireland to win the Turner Prize since its inception in 1984. As Tom Seymour writes, the collective receives £25,000 in prize money, while a further £10,000 will be awarded to the four other shortlisted artist collectives. Array have been working together since 2016, motivated by activism around human rights issues in Northern Ireland and beyond. They created a shibin or pub without permission in the Herbert Art Gallery in Coventry, where the prize exhibition is taking place. The jury awarded them the prize for the way they, quote, were able to translate their activism and values into the gallery environment, creating a welcoming, immersive and surprising exhibition. A new interior design for the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, planned by Catholic Church officials and presented during a video conference earlier this year, has outraged critics. As Vincent Noss reports, although the project has not been formally announced, Father Gilles Drouin provided an overview during an online conference in May. Among the proposals are a sound and light trail, luminous mobile benches and the possible renaming of some of the cathedral's chapels after Asia, Africa and other themes. Among the critics was the Paris-based architect Maurice Coulot, the author of several books on religious architecture in the 19th century, who said, quote, It's Notre Dame de Paris turned into Disneyland. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can download from the App Store and Google Play. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On the heels of a successful 2021 sale week in New York, Christie's post-war contemporary art December online sales are live for bidding from today, the 3rd of December. First open post-war and contemporary art showcases the defining artists of today, like Kondo, Warhol, Calder and Scharf, while the second online sale, Image World Online, property from a private American collection, presents an array of important contemporary artists such as Sherman, Prince and Wool. Both sales offer an opportunity for those just beginning their collecting journeys and for seasoned collectors. Find out more at christies.com. Now, the exhibition Life Between Islands, Caribbean British Art 1950s to Now, opened this week at Tate Britain in London, featuring 40 artists. It begins with those from the generation that the Barbadian poet and academic Kamal Brathwaite described as arrivants who came to the UK in the 1950s, among them the group known as the Caribbean Artists Movement. It then continues through successive generations and movements, including the Black Arts Movement of the 1980s, right up to artists with Caribbean heritage who have emerged in the last decade. It's a vast show taking an extraordinary range of disciplines and materials, from Aubrey Williams's abstract paintings of the 1950s to documentary photography of the 60s, 70s and 80s, paintings by Sonia Boyce, Peter Doig and Chris Ophelia, excerpts from feature films like Pressure by Horace Ove, video works by Boyce and Isaac Julian, a one-minute student film Exodus by Steve McQueen in which he follows two men carrying palm plants onto a London bus, and an explosion of media in works made by artists over recent years. It also reflects the rich intellectual background to the art provided by thinkers including Brathwaite and the cultural theorist Stuart Hall, whose memoir Familiar Stranger, A Life Between Two Islands, helped provide the show's title. 
I spoke to the show's curators, Alex Farkerson, the director of Tate Britain, and David A. Bailey, the organiser of numerous seminal exhibitions on diaspora and black representation in art, and the artistic director of the International Curators Forum. But before we hear from them, here's an excerpt from an episode of our sister podcast, A Brush With, in which I spoke to the Barbadian Scottish artist Alberta Whittle, a key contributor to the Tate Britain show. Here, she reflects on identity in relation to her native Barbados and her home, Glasgow. I identify so strongly as being Barbadian or being Caribbean, but also making this choice to live in Scotland. And in some ways, I've at times felt, I think, quite uncomfortable with situating myself so firmly in this duality of identities. But I also think, you know, the older I get, there's always this distinction being made about being from one or the other, especially in the UK, where I'm asked regularly where I come from. And when I say, well, I've lived in Glasgow all my adult life, people are like, yeah, but where do you really come from? And that's a really frustrating question to be asked. And I think it's now become a point of, you know, me recognising my choice, but also the fact that I've made this choice. This is an act of choice to live in Scotland. It's also an act of choice to really reflect on the fact that Scotland is a creolised space, which I don't think it's ever really spoken of. And therefore, my Caribbean identity should be very welcome here and be completely anticipated and expected because it is creolised. Scotland would not be the place it is today without the Caribbean. You can hear the full podcast, A Brush with Alberta Whittle, wherever you're currently listening. So now, my conversation with Alex Farkerson and David A. Bailey. Alex, I know this show has been in production for some time now, so I wanted to explore the gestation of it for a bit. Can you tell us about that background? Yeah, of course. We've been working on it for about six years, and and I felt it was a really important thing to do immediately on arrival at Tate Britain, actually, in that, well, it's such an extraordinary story. You know, if you piece together the art history of uh, the Caribbean connection in British art, uh, wave after wave, I think it's a fascinating way of looking at the history of British art. And what's more, of course, that visual art speaks so profoundly with so much vivacity to a broader cultural, social, and political experience. So I think, you know, David and I had that shared interest, not only in how art history in this country could look different when looked at from a Caribbean perspective, but also to see how the visual arts, a bit, a bit as we're used to popular music being, or Caribbean literature being, to see the visual arts as this lens for a broader cultural, political intellectual, human experience. So that's really what we set out to do. Um, and I think it has particular resonance at Tate Britain as the, the home of British art. And I, you know, I would say that, you know, of course I was aware of David's many years of work as a curator doing extraordinary shows uh, on different facets of uh, the African diaspora uh, in this country, in the Caribbean, in North America. We had something of a shared interest in that I'd done a major show on Haiti. So I was already fascinated in the ideas, the intellectual history, the political history, the religions, the vernacular culture of that region and wanted to know how that uh, played out in the British Caribbean, um, while also, of course, being aware of this amazing heritage of Caribbean British art we have here. And David, in your catalogue essay, one of the things that you say towards the end is that, in a way, this show is a kind of demonstration that multiple generations of Caribbean artists or artists with a Caribbean heritage 
are essential to the story of British art. And that's something that very much is played out through the show, isn't it? You know, through several movements and through multiple generations, these are artists absolutely at the core of the story of British art. Yes, entirely. I mean, the show is really an intergenerational show and it's been curated with, with, with that in mind. And so intergeneration in terms of age, but also intergeneration in terms of movements as well, um, which overlap and which makes the show messy because it's not very clean. But then we feel that the history of the Caribbean is very messy, is very fused, is very kind of fragmented and also is very much appropriated. Um, So we have all of those elements within the kind of curatorial narrative of the show. And what's really interesting about those overlapping generations and genres as well is that um, it's almost like it's it's very kind of um, musical in terms of like, it, they're very kind of tonal motifs that repeat and kind of come back and forth throughout the project, which is part of the curatorial narrative. I think that's really interesting and really important. And it's something that really comes through in the show. I think there's a, I think in, Alex, in your essay, you say it's almost like the kind of echoes of dub. It's it's like there are resonances that, that carry through the show. There's lovely um, correspondences between works right at the start of the show and then much later. And so, I mean, the classic example being that, you know, you, you know, you have the the early generation of artists who are profoundly connected with Kamal Braithwaite, who is, you know, a leading literary figure. And right at the end of the show, you've got Alberta Whittle directly quoting Braithwaite. So it's a... It's a really powerful dialogue across time, apart from anything else. Yeah, that's right, Ben. I mean, in a way, we wanted to use simple linear progression as a foil against which these repeating patterns and these correspondences across time could play out. So, you know, you do voyage through time. I think this is a really strong factor in the Caribbean cultural experience and certainly reflected in artistic and intellectual sensibilities, you get these amazing kind of cycles of thought. And as you say, today's artists like Alberta Whittle or, or the Otolith group would be quoting Una Marson or Sylvia Winter or Kama Brathwaite uh, in their very latest works or, or Isaac Julian a few years earlier, basing his video installation Paradise Omeros on Derek Walcott's great long poem, Omeros, which is itself an Antillian take on Homer's uh, Odyssey. So you get these amazing cycles. And I think, you know, one thing that's also so important and really important politically in the show is, and there's a moment in the exhibition that really makes it explicit, we've called Ghosts of History, where artists really play with diachronic time. They superimpose the present on the past or the past on present often a deep past, and uh, in particular, but in other ways, uh, showing correspondences between slavery and its afterlives and the present. So say Labena Hamid's piece on Toussaint Louverture from the 1980s, where she's collaged in headlines from newspapers, showing how there's this kind of extraordinary uh, stereotyping on hostility towards the black uprisings and other necessary conflicts of that time that she writes on this portrait to Toussaint Louverture. None of this would be news if you you knew who Toussaint Louverture was. Of course, the great leader of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. So that's an example where I think the artists are really, you know, mindful 
of these unfinished histories, these historical reverberations through time, a bit as Linton Kwesi Johnson was through one of his great tracks, The Great Insurrection, you know, where you feel he's evoking the slave insurrections of the past in talking about what he called his own rebel generation, you know, the generation that had had enough by 1981. David, Stuart Hall's an insistent presence in the show, isn't he? You took the title of the show from his memoir, and there's a portrait of him, for instance, by Van Lee Burke, um, a photographic portrait. But then there's also his ideas are interpreted and reinterpreted throughout the show, aren't they? Yes, I mean, there are several figures and their voices and legacies that are throughout the show, but um, without a doubt, Stuart is, is one of them. He wasn't a member of the Caribbean artist movement, but was invited to come and speak to them in that, in that early period. So he's, he evokes that. And the images that, that we have, or what the images that are in the show, uh, are from Van Lee Burke. And it's a very, very rare image of Stuart's office, actually, in, in Birmingham. I think it's important that it's from Van Lee Burke because the idea is that it's not London-centric. And the whole thing about Britain and the Caribbean is that it was across, you know, Wales, Scotland, and throughout the England, and, but also the West Midlands particularly, uh, was an important region for the mobilisation in terms of art. I mean, as we know, Birmingham has one of the largest Afro-Caribbean populations, but also Birmingham was the base of, you know, cultural studies, Paul Gilroy, all that kind of intellectual writing and thinking, and also um, was the basis around the kind of areas of the Black art movements of the 80s. So for me, that, that image signifies so much um, through how Stuart always signifies so much. In relation to the show, I think yeah, the one artist who truly, really invokes the spirit of Stuart, it has to be Isaac Julian. Um, and even though his works, are, Isaac's works, are particularly kind of located around the idea of kind of Caribbean poets. And Stuart has a phrase, which is like, which he calls beyond the frame. We need to see beyond the frame. We need to expand beyond the frame and look at the critical ideas around difference. And I feel that's throughout the show, but Isaac evokes that a lot. And his first project, when he was leaving art school, Territories very much evokes that because Territories is about looking beyond the frame, um, looking beyond the territories and expanding the territories to kind of include all these other kind of ideas around post-slavery carnival sexuality and um, police in the state, which is very much part of the writings of Stuart of the time. Indeed. You mentioned about Isaac Julian, and I think he's, in a way, he's the two works that he has in the show are very illustrative of the kind of scope of the show in terms of territories being really quite hard-hitting having elements of documentary but also theory for instance and then Paradise Omeros as you see which is a very poetic film you know it has Walcott's voice in it for instance so you get these quite broad extremes of of language across the show and that's very deliberate isn't it Alex? If I had to find one piece to encompass much of the uh, concerns of the show, I'd probably choose Paradise Omeros, but that would be at a stretch. You have this amazing kind of split screen view of the diaspora. So on the one hand, you're in St. Lucia on beaches, on rainforests. Uh, On another screen, you're in a brutalist estate in London. And 
the same young man exists in both spaces almost simultaneously. You've also got the relationship between two generations, the parents' generation and the young man's generation. You've got the kind of syncretization that goes on in turn in Britain you know, with his arrival and as he's negotiating uh, a British culture in Britain. And, of course, a homoerotic narrative or suggestion of one creates that kind of fusion on a very personal level. You've also got the, the metaphorical, the supernatural, alongside the real, and I think this is a really important motif for so much Caribbean art. The way that so much Caribbean vernacular culture and, and the avant-garde culture that valorizes it as a way of finding a way out of colonialism and it's um, the mindsets it's given rise to. That vernacular culture is so much about a kind of collective surrealism, not a surrealism located in the depth of an individual subconscious, but a kind of will through culture to surrealize reality, often as a form, I think, of resistance to those difficult realities, be they under colonialism in the Caribbean or in a post-colonial context, uh, context of racism and discrimination here. So that's why Carnival is both a celebration and an amazing source of resistance, sometimes defiance. And these things, I think, reality, surreality, if you like, a pleasure, joy, celebration, on the one hand, resistance, struggle, defiance, on the other, so often appear inseparable uh, in works in this exhibition. Some things we've done intentionally with the show in terms of how we pair things and how we make things and connections. I feel some things conceptually just comes out of the moment of how we've put this thing together. And lots of people have remarked about the film and the moving image elements to the project. And I, and I was watching how Paradise almost and how that almost is a mirrored with pressure with Horace Ovo's pressure, if that makes sense, mm. in the way that, you know, both speak to the intergenerational, to two generations, both play on the idea of the patois are in both scenarios, and both also speak about the kind of the, 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 the domestic in relation to the global, in relation to that. But what's really interesting about the two is that we're looking at, really, two generations who are shifting the envelope in filmmaking, you know, Horace is pushing, Horace Ovi is pushing the, the elements of the documentary uh, where he's using kind of the motifs of Italian realism within, within that, um, within the mise-en-scene, within that work. And obviously, Isaac Julian is always in the mise-en-scene um, within his work and pushes the elements of, as Alex eloquently points out, how the avant-garde in the documentary pushes it towards the element of film installation as well. And so, you know, Horace never made a film that was meant to be shown within an installation environment, if that makes sense. Whereas Isaac's project is about how one pushes the envelope within the moving image in the installation environment. So I really feel that in addition to all the intergenerational elements and issues, there's also the form itself, whether it's painting, whether it's film, whether it's sculpture. Um, we're really looking at artists that are at the kind of the peak of their careers who are really pushing the boundaries with the ideas of people like Stuart, but actually the form itself is really pushed as well. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that comes through very clearly. And also how even within distinct genre, so for instance, there is, a, as you say, a lot of documentary work in the show, but how those documentary elements in the hands of different artists take on different 
powers and and how there can be a much more collaged aesthetic that feels absolutely as a form of, of realism as a documentary photograph of protests in Birmingham, for instance. Alex, do you want to say something about that? Well, I would say the first part of the show, if we can think of it in four parts, which is very much about the work of the post-war generation up to the 70s, you, you get a bit of a binary between abstract painting, sculpture, uh, very symbolist work on the one hand, some artists mining surrealism, but for new purposes, political purposes. And then on the other hand, documentary photography, as you say, you know, very lyrical photographs of communities in Notting Hill, in, in Brixton, either, if you like, everyday life or, or, or struggles. Um, so you have that, and then, but by the time you get to the 80s, artists are folding the documentary into the imaginary, into the symbolic. You don't get that binary of the kind you get in that first generation, where the photographers, I think, are doing something quite distinct from an artist like Aubrey Williams, for example. So there, I, I, I think from then on, in particular when in a moment in the show that we, we call Caribbean Regained, where after the 80s, where the work ceases to be so much about the here and now in Britain, the exhibition kind of redirects its gaze across the Atlantic. You get... You know, I, I don't think you can make the same distinctions between realism and these other forms that are more symbolic, more abstract. I mean, take someone like Peter Doig's paintings, for example. You feel they occurred a kind of twilight or, you know, state between being awake and dreaming. And uh, I, I would say it's that kind of transformative moment that a lot of the works situate themselves in. Or you take Sonia Boyce's film, Cropover. It runs through different, different registers. You have a, uh, a, a traditional carnival character in a way, appropriating Harewood House in Yorkshire, vast stately home built from the proceeds of sugar and slavery in, in Barbados. And you have that character impossibly relocated from Barbados Cropover to, to this estate, to this aristocratic estate in, in Barbados. But then, you know, you move into a sociologist talking about carnival, really dissecting its typology. And then you move into carnival as, as a real-time performance itself. So there you have really different registers that have different relationships to realism and, and the imaginary combined, folded into each other. And again, I think this is something that is... I think that Caribbean aesthetics is particularly rich in. This not, not seeing politics, not seeing the imaginary as separate zones. And maybe one could see that, I mean, thinking about Haiti again, you know, the, the Haitian Revolution famously, you know, began with a, a slave revolt that came out of a voodoo ceremony. So the idea of the gods, you know, the African gods or the African-based gods being inseparable from political revolution was perhaps unthinkable to those people and perhaps gave them additional power, certainly courage, you know, in the face of absolute fearsome technology from, you know, the imperial, imperial powers. So this is a very strong component of Caribbean aesthetics and I think you see it in much of the work in the show, this sort of refusal of a kind of binary between the real and and the imaginary, or what we would normally call the surreal, but the surreal is something collectively shared, done together. 
David, I, I wanted to ask you about, because we're talking just as Barbados has become the world's newest republic. Hey. And uh, so it's, yeah, so it's extraordinarily timed, your show. But it's vital to talk about this show also in the context of independence movements and pan-Caribbean politics, etc. Can you say something about how, how important those kind of movements in the Caribbean, the independence movement, but also pan-Africanism were to the whole, the series of movements, I guess, that, that the show illustrates? I think it's very important to think about it in two stages. Firstly, there is the pre-independence stage. Or if you look at the writings of Aubrey Williams, he, he talks about, um, and, and also John LaRose, um, who, was, who was the founder of the Caribbean Artists Movement, they really talk about the notion of the 40s and 50s as the missing chapter in relation to um, Caribbean history in relation to Britain. I mean, by missing chapter, they talk about the idea that um, this was the period of mass mobilization, mass unionization. And it's important to recognize that because when people from the Caribbean start to come to Britain, they begin to mobilize and they begin to develop their own movements. Hence why we have the Caribbean artist movement, because as John Rose eloquently points out, it was a logical thing for them to do because they were already doing it in the Caribbean. And all of a sudden, England or Britain gave them the opportunity to do it across different Caribbean islands, i.e., they couldn't do it in Trinidad, you know, they couldn't have this kind of cross Barbados guy because of the geographical nature, but in London somehow, and the cosmopolitan nature of London, they all came together and it enabled them to kind of develop a mass movement and a collective identity and to organise collectively. So it's important to recognise that how the 40s and 50s were important about it and how in particularly areas like Guyana, there were, you know, works or political works, government works in progress that allowed artists to be, you know, artists to become artists, you know, in terms of education and the arts was very important in that. So already you had those foundations in place already before they came to Britain. And also the idea that somehow there was a pre-independent spirit in the work, in the writings and in some of the, the performances um, in, in theatre as well, which is, this is very much the case of Trinidad, where you know, Horace Ove talks about the idea that it wasn't so much film that he was interested in. It was the idea that somehow in places like Trinidad, the idea of performance and ritual was very much part in play to kind of use, to kind of stage a kind of reaction to post kind of colonial moment and how kind of, Trinidad was being colonized, particularly by the Americans. So in that sense, you know, um, the idea of carnival becomes an important, not only signifier, but it becomes a, a way in which some of the islands, particularly Trinidad, get to kind of come together to think about how they can critically attack the post-colonial moment, but also at the same time, as Alex eloquently points out, retain the ancestry and spiritual spirit and folklore of, of the past. So it's really difficult to talk about the idea of political independence movements without having to think through about how these movements developed pre-60s when they all started to emerge. And also to think about the world globally in relation to that, because we are talking post-45, um, the world changes after the Second World War. By this time, lots of people in Car from the Caribbean are involved in fighting in the different areas in, in the Second World War. So they come back with this sense of saying, well, actually, because of the notion of Europe, we are now thinking about ourselves in relation to that. Africa becomes very important in that. And so does India, particularly in places like um, Guyana, where they begin to be 
part of that kind of non-alignment states. So it's it's when you think about Caribbean independence, you have to think about it in the in the context of the global independence movement in Africa, in um, India, and and post the Second World War, to think about how it was part of that kind of historical narrative. I wanted to talk about Steve McQueen because there's a one one work by Steve McQueen. It's a really early work, a student work, in fact, called Exodus, which is about one minute long, and of course. Steve McQueen's been sort of a talisman of, of a lot of um, material around this subject recently because of the Small Axe series. And I presume that was a factor in deciding not to go big on Steve's work in this show in the sense that, he, you know, you can still watch Small Axe on BBC iPlayer for about another couple of weeks, I think. So everybody has to go and see those if they can. But he is a presence there and he seems, you know, he's obviously a tremendously important artist in this discussion. The show has been conceived since 2015. And so we knew and also I know that, you know, take plans way, way ahead. But we also were thinking about how the works can speak to each other. And so it wasn't a case of that, you know, um, the overexposure of Steve. I mean, Alex, we'll talk about this a bit more. And um, and also the fact that, you know, he had the, there's a year free project and there was the Tate Modern project as well, uh, which also um, included the piece that we have. We, we, we really were trying to focus on how the works themselves could speak to certain narratives of the show. Um, I think it's fair to say, Alex, and uh, um, in some ways, I think, I think I was immensely happy that the Small Axe series came about before the show, actually, because it was good. I think it was good timing, actually, more than anything else. It, it allowed us to create another dialogue with what's going on in, in terms of the greater sphere, because we see the show as a kind of expansive space that talks to things that are going outside of the, of the Take Cube, as well as what's going on within the Maddox, I feel. Is that fair to say? No, it is. And Ben, I think you, you got it absolutely right. We, we thought this is a small, you know, in a way, modest way of pointing to Steve's vast and very recent project on, you know, reckoning with the Caribbean-British recent past through the Uprising series, through, of course, the Small Axe films. And those works were made for television, I think is the other thing to say. So they weren't made for the gallery. But absolutely, we hope that the presence of Exodus would summon up that knowledge of Steve's extraordinary engagement, almost sort of forensic and super dramatic as well, engagement with these histories. I think Steve himself talks about, I've heard him talk about in interviews, he was asked, you know, why didn't you deal with your own immediate heritage earlier? I mean, after all, this is an artist, a filmmaker whose first feature film was about the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland, you know, not about police brutality, say, in the 1970s, as faced by the uh, Caribbean community here. And, uh, and, and, and he said that he needed that amount of time to process it. Plus, you know, I think he commented that the elders found it very difficult to talk about. And, you know, it's something that required a great deal of research on a one-to-one level. But I think also, you know, as well as Exodus speaking for the immensity of Steve's engagement with ideas and experiences that are so important to life between islands and the artists in it, I think also, you know, it's like a, I think in literary criticism, they call it a metonym, where, you know, one, one aspect of something stands for the whole. 
And I think the, the pots, that short journey that the two men make in Trilby's in 1993 when it was filmed, through the streets, through the markets, until just at the kind of one-minute moment, he can no longer see them because they're inside a double-decker bus on the way home. Those palms, of course, stand for, you know, the geography of the Caribbean, where those men are presumed, presumably from. And that short journey of a few hundred metres tracked by his camera also stands for the immense transatlantic journey that they would have undertaken in their lives with everything psychologically, culturally, that comes with that that the exhibition otherwise traces through works that are perhaps operating on a larger scale. So I, I, I do think in some ways it's the show in miniature. And, you know, the per- not, not a full stop, because I think the end of the exhibition cycles back round again, makes you think of the beginning again, and makes you think of this as a kind of continuing story too. But I do think it's the perfect, apparently modest, um, but almost universal in terms of the themes of the show, uh, way to finish a show. Well, David and Alex, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this extraordinary show. Thank you. Thank you, man. Life Between Islands, Caribbean British Art, 1950s to now, is at Tate Britain in London until the 3rd of April 2022. The accompanying book is published by Tate and is excellent. David A. Bailey's book with Alison Thompson, titled Liberation Begins in the Imagination, an anthology of writings on Caribbean British art and culture, is also published by Tate and priced £30. Steve McQueen's five-film series, Small Axe, is available for free in the UK on BBC iPlayer until the 13th of December and on Amazon Prime outside the UK. And Lubaina Hamid's solo exhibition at Tate Modern continues until the 3rd of July 2022. And finally, it's time for our work of the week. Among the countless shows around Art Basel Miami Beach is Heaven's Gate, a new work by the video artist Marco Brambia at the Perez Art Museum Miami or PAM. It's described by the museum as a lavish, satirical and vertigo-inducing meditation on the Hollywood Dream Factory, a work of digital psychedelia employing the same state-of-the-art computer compositing technology as the films it references. Amy Dawson, our deputy digital editor, spoke to Marco about the work. So I was lucky enough to view Heaven's Gate on a virtual reality headset and it was this incredible visual overload where I experienced time travel from dinosaurs roaming around my head all the way through to the riots at the US Capitol that we witnessed at the beginning of this year. So can you describe a little bit about this work? Well, this is actually the fourth work I've made using a video collage technique. Uh, The first work was called Civilization 2006. And um, this work is a little bit different because it takes uh, two forms. Uh, One form is a physical installation where you're looking at this historical tableau made up of movie samples as almost like a totemic storytelling. And then the second version is where we levitate through um, this panoramic. And it's a much more subjective, um, kind of immersive way of looking at the at the story. Uh, but both versions have their own kind of psychological impact. And one, you're looking at a narrative told as you would in um, kind of a diorama at the Museum of Natural History. And in the other, you're actually participating 
in um, in this uh, ascension through the different levels of, I mean, they're both different levels of purgatory and different levels of history simultaneously, I think. And can you talk about the kinds of images that you've overlaid? Because there's appearances from celebrities and obviously it's very Hollywood-esque. So can you tell us about some of the works and tableaus that you've taken from these inspirations? Well, in, in this work, I chose samples from imagery that reflected kind of post-depression, post-World War II glamour and extravagance. So there was a, a tremendous amount of imagery taken from uh, Hollywood musicals, uh, larger-than-life characters, superheroes, the modern equivalent now being superheroes, of course. And I think um, it really em embodied the spirit of today, in a way, because I think uh, this was obviously made during the lockdown, as you know, um, and we were bombarded with information about the Trump re-election campaign, the coronavirus, economic uh, situations, etc., etc. And I think this idea of uh, post-depression, post-war euphoria um, channeled through film, because the, the language of this is all taken from film, seemed appropriate um, to reflect this kind of um, dance of death, if you will, this kind of almost apocalyptic uh, situation in which we found ourselves uh, last year. So it really expresses itself in a much more uh, euphoric way than the previous collages. And I, and I didn't stay away from using recognizable characters that represented excess and glamour and, and consumerism. I really kind of leaned into that in, in this work. One of the things that I was thinking when I was uh, experiencing the work is that this fantastical world that you create really reminds me so much of like Hieronymus Bosch's really detailed surrealist paintings from the 15th and 16th centuries. What were your inspirations for this piece? Does that like ring any bells with you or whether other artists or works from art history that that resonated? Absolutely. I think Bruegel was the primary influence and Hieronymus Bosch was, was the second one. So those are the two main influences on, on this kind of work because it's really a, a kind of Baroque work in a way. And I, and I think the way it connects directly to, to those precedents is the fact that it's a kind of it's nonlinear storytelling. So the storytelling is really uh, the stream of consciousness in a way and you're, you're watching um, 20 or 30 different scenarios unfold simultaneously and it seems they may be um, not connected in any obvious way but thematically when you're looking at it as a scroll and your subjective point of view is rising through it um, they they do tend to make sense on a maybe on a subliminal level very much in the same way as Bruegel's paintings in a more uh, literal way, obviously, the light, the day in the life of a village and what went on in that village uh, as a as a 24 hour period all on one tableau um, was his contribution to that kind of storytelling and painting. And I think um, this has a similar way of um, of telling that kind of story uh, only using motion loops and, and visuals with computers. So it's a very high tech uh, version of the same kind of storytelling. It's a very high-tech version of an old master kind of vision. And 
one of the things about it as well is how much you want to go back and look into that detail. On first experience, it's kind of quite overwhelming and then you, you hone in on those details. At the PAM in Miami, uh, it's being shown both as a video installation, as you say, of these kind of totemic screens, but also can be experienced on VR. And during Art Week, people will be able to en masse experience it with extra headsets. I wondered what your preference was, because of course, I think the video quality is much sharper on a screen, whereas the headsets don't allow that same kind of uh, quality, but obviously the experience is all the more impressive. So I wondered if you had a preference. Well, I was very lucky to uh, work with a company called Vive Art, uh, which makes you know, the, the state-of-the-art headsets. So uh, there's no longer a sacrifice in the image quality when you're in the immersive version of the work versus the, the physical installation that's at the museum at the same time. And uh, this will be the first time when uh, we can have 20 or 30 people all entering this virtual reality world simultaneously because... Um, since I made the work, um, HTC Vive have come out with a very portable headset that looks like aviator glasses and you just put it on and it works. And we can have 20 or 30 of those and, and have large groups of people. So it brings it back to this kind of more communal experience, which is similar to the way you're looking at a physical installation, although each person is obviously having his own kind of um, interactive experience inside the headset. It sounds like there's going to be lots of very cool looking people walking around the PAM experiencing this <laughs> VR work. Um, as you said, this isn't your first foray into the world of XR or extended reality. So last year you created uh, The Four Temperaments where Kate Blanchett performs four distinct characters based on personality types. Can you describe a bit more about that work and also what it was that attracted you to work in XR as an artist? Well, I think I've always been interested in working with new forms of technology in, in my work. So I started working with LiDAR in, you know, the, the 2010. I was working with video game engines in 2004. Um, and I think uh, in in some ways it's a comment on the technology as well. So there's a, a, a kind of dislocation that occurs when we engage too closely with technology and technology has obviously has a, as a, as a bright future, a, a kind of utopian side, but also a very dystopian side. And I think um, the Kate Blanchett work, the four temperaments, again, the idea of reducing uh, personality types into these basic uh, stereotypes and these hierarchies of, of emotion and personality is very much the way we as humans are identified by algorithms and the way we are categorized into personality types so that advertisers can target in, in messages to us in a more efficient way. So in, in one way, it does use a very high-tech presentation because you have Kate Blanchett floating in your environment uh, speaking to you. Um, but on another hand, it also shows that uh, she's also trapped into these four uh, archetypal uh, stereotypes, which is very much the way 
um, were being considered by governments and authority uh, through technology. Like, for instance, I'm sure you know in China now you have uh, kind of social credits. So if you jaywalk, you, you get a minus two points if you do. So you basically accumulate a series of credentials that may or may not allow you to buy a house or get married or move to where you want to move to. So I think as technology becomes more um, intrusive and, and we depend on it, uh, much more. Uh, we're also uh, trackable and, and uh, categorizable and, and we can be uh, uh, sold anything at any time um, in, with, with great ease. And I think uh, we're moving into this kind of dystopian, uh, darker um, version of what technology can do for, for people, I think. So that work reflects both those aspects of aspiration, because her character is saying, I love you in a very aspirational way, but yet the, the mode of seeing it and the mode of communication has this kind of weird dislocation to it, where she's, she's trapped in her own stereotypes. So fascinating. And will you be in Miami for Art Week? Yes, I will. And are you showing any works in the fair? Um, no, not in the fair, but I do have a talk, the viewing event that's on Friday, December 3rd at uh, Perez Museum. Uh, I will be having a talk with uh, Franklin Sermons, who I've been in a dialogue with for about a year and a half, setting up the show and, and all of that. So we'll have the largest VR group uh, viewing event that's ever happened anywhere. Uh, and at the same time, there'll be a talk between Franklin and myself talking about the work and, and the physical installation as well. Thank you so much for talking to us today. You're very welcome. A pleasure. Thank you. Heaven's Gate is at the Perez Art Museum in Miami until the 1st of February next year, and an in-depth review of Heaven's Gate by the art newspaper's XR panel can be found on our website. The panel brings together a group of international experts in the field of XR, or extended reality, every month to critically review and make sense of the cutting-edge digital work that artists, museums, galleries and app makers are creating across the spectrum of XR, from augmented to virtual reality. Search XR panel on our website to find out more. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julian Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Danielle Hathaway. And to this week's guests, Melanie, Alex and David and Amy and Marco. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.